Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we open your holy and inspired word, help me to teach it well and rightly. May it be as food for the souls of those gathered here. May it feed us all. May its seed fall on fertile soil, and may it encourage us, challenge us, and even convict us. We pray in the name of the living word, Jesus. Amen. Well, the church at Corinth, <clears throat> as we've been in 1 Corinthians lately, it's, it was all about spiritual gifts, spiritual enablements that given by God for the edification of the body of Christ, and they, and, and they had some spectacular ones. They had some great ones. And as, we, as I read 1 Corinthians and, and try to get a sense of what their gathering times would be like, uh, I, I imagine that there would be some things that would trouble you, and the things that wouldn't seem there's that's not something's not right here, but there would also be, and I think any honest reader would have to say this. There would have to be some. You'd have an unmistakable sense that God was at work there. That this there are things happening here that are definitely supernatural. This is, you know, this is the, the Holy Spirit is showing up at the at this place, and, and yet Paul is very concerned about the spiritual health of this church at Corinth and, and how could that be with you know, with with such so many obviously spiritually gifted people there it's because and it's in part we're in first Corinthians 13 it's in part because there's something amiss in the church's uh, love life love is really he argues that the first Corinthians 13 he argues that love is the only proper environment where spiritual gifts can function as they're intended to build up the body of Christ, to build up believers, stewardships of the manifold grace of God. And at Corinth, they had some great spiritual gifts, but they seem to have been used for the benefit of the gifted person. You know, they had these gifts, but they seem to have been, most importantly to the people who had them sometimes, uh, avenues of self-expression. You know, I got, I'm a you know, express myself, or or even beyond that, self-promotion. Uh, there are signs of spiritual status. You know, they have people that are envying other people because of their gifts, or people that, that saw themselves as higher and better because of the nature of the gifts they had. They were to be admired. There were evidence. The spiritual gifts people had were evidence of where they fit, and where others fit, by extension, in the church's uh, pecking order. You know, where you were on the social ladder, and some were clearly at the top, and others not so much. You know, they were at the bottom. And they thought of themselves that way, too. Because I'm a foot, I'm not a part of the body. You remember that. So right in the middle of this extended discussion on spiritual gifts, which is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 12 says now about spiritual gifts, and 14 we're still talking about spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues, and right in the middle of it, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul waxes poetic on the subject of love, one of the most famous and oft-quoted passages in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. But it's in that context of spiritual gifts, and, it, and it's about the kind of environment in which spiritual gifts can function properly and as they're intended. I've argued 
not just in the past couple of weeks, but admittedly over the past couple of decades, that simply taking the language of 1 Corinthians 13 at face value presents a serious challenge to the, to the very common teaching that biblical love or more specifically agape love, the, Greek, the word for love used, really uh, a favorite word for love in the New Testament, has challenges the teaching that that agape love or biblical love has nothing to do with the affections, nothing to do with the feelings, nothing to do with the emotions. Many teach just that. That it has the biblical love, the command to love has nothing to do with how you feel about things. It's simply a decision of your will to do loving things. It has nothing to do with uh, your feelings about a person. You just make a decision uh, to do loving deeds for someone, no matter how you feel about them. And to do that is to obey the Bible when it says to love. Well, 1 Corinthians 13, just taken at face value, just unravels that point of view. For one thing, 13.3 clearly tells us that we can do what would appear to be loving things to the extreme and not have love at all. I can, if we give away all our belongings... If we give away everything we have, we can do that without love. If I give my body to be burned and have not love, I'm nothing, it says. In other words, but you can do that without love and somehow be missing this thing that the Bible calls love. So you can do the loving thing to the utmost and still not have it. Still not have it. And for another thing, another reason why this is, it unravels this idea that it's only about doing things, it's not about how we feel, not about our affections, is that in these 15, in these verses we're in today, we started last week and we'll finish today, the four, verses 4 through 7, we get to these 15 signs, there are 15 things mentioned, 15 signs of love's presence, or signs of, of its absence, we see that some of those things really do necessarily involve actions. They are things that you do. Loving people do certain things. I argued last week that kindness is really, how can you be kind without doing kind things? You know, so it's necessarily involved with the actions. But other things... Other of these signs of love's presence or signs of love, love's absence are wholly or at least mostly attitudinal, affectional. They're in, in, there's something in us. They do involve the affections. They do involve the emotions. We can be, love doesn't envy. We had last week. We can be envious completely in private. We can be envious completely in secret, we don't have to do anything to be envious, and we might be successful in hiding it from everybody. But what is it that when, when we hide our envy, we don't let it show, 
What is it that we're hiding? We're hiding our feelings. <laughs> we're hiding our affections. We're, we're hiding the thoughts of our, you know, our disposition. Our true, the true thoughts of our mind. Arrogance, we did that last week. But much, well, I hope we didn't do arrogance last week. We covered that last week. But arrogance is probably a lot more difficult to hide. But it's something that certainly that belongs mostly to the realm of the affections and the feelings. Resentfulness. Rejoicing. Believing. Hoping. All of these speak to the inner life. The inner life. Rejoicing is something you do, right? You speak out, you rejoice. But if you don't, if you don't have it in here, you're pretending to rejoice. You're mimicking rejoicing. You're not doing it, not wholeheartedly. And so this is this is an important point to make again and again. At least I think. Because what we don't want to learn in this chapter, this love chapter, is how to better mimic love. We, we don't want to learn from it how we might get some pointers here on how we might better pretend to love. How we might present a more convincing picture that we do love, whether we truly love from the heart or not. Because, you know, we've all been guilty of that. We've all been guilty of that. One time or another, one degree or another, maintaining kind of facade of love, doing the loving thing, but gritting our teeth inside, you know. Saying, I'm going to do it. It's the right thing to do. But I don't feel it in here. (laughs) The verses that we're in do not define love so much as give us signs of its presence or its absence and in verses verses of 4 through 7 they're really 15 just short verses but they're 15 signs of love's presence or absence and they're like I thought of this week I thought of it as like canaries in a gold mine or a coal mine canaries you know up into the 20th century I think even coal miners would carry a caged canary into the gold mine as like an early warning system. You know, so there's poisonous gases. They, you know, the canary is being far more sensitive than in a full-grown male, you know, down in the coal mine. They would, the canary would be, get sick and die before the coal miner knew that there's anything at all wrong with the air. And, th- and that's what these 15 signs are like. They're, these are canaries. You know, these are signs that the air... Is there enough love in the air here to be safe? And really, in the context, safe for the exercise of spiritual gifts, but not beyond the context, safe for anything else. These are... In other words, they're not so much love itself, but it's you can't see the air, you can't see love. But this, what, is there enough love in the air to breathe here? Uh, to exercise spiritual gifts here. So here are the canaries, some living, some dead. First <laughs> Corinthians four through seven. I'm, I'm not going to. We'll read from verse four, but we're going to uh, just look at five through seven because we did verse four last week. Now I'm going to try to look at them. In, in uh, there's ten left in five through seven. We try to cover them all 
today. I determined in my mind last Sunday that we needed more, uh, more a little bit more Bible, a little less sermon. So uh, we're going to try to get through all those ten. First Corinthians 13:4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And verse five or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First one today, first canary in the coal mine, love is not rude. It's not rude. English... If you're looking at a Bible, the English Standard Version makes it look like a very strange place for a verse division. That's how it verse 5 begins, or rude, period. And it seems odd because this is one of Paul's typical run-on sentences. It's real long, and English translators have to... They put periods in places to help make sense of things, and they add some words sometimes. In this one, you get a lot of it is. That's just added. It's not in the Greek text, but it is. New New International Version starts this verse, it is not rude. Love is not rude. Paul just gets, and you have to do that with Paul sometimes, or they do, translators do, because he just, he just gushes sometimes. He just he gets carried. He seems to get carried away with himself, and he just gushes these long sentences. Practically, the whole of Ephesians one is one sentence. You know, it just it's just he just he just pours it out. But he said so. So it. But love is not rude. It, it it really it literally means love is not according to form. And when they heard that, not according to form, what did that mean? For them, for the original readers, it meant. Be, behaving disgracefully, uh, behaving dishonorably, indecently. It's a, it's, it's a very broad word. It still is rude. Can you imagine making a list of all, the, of all rudeness, <laughs> of all the possible ways? It's a very broad word, a million applications, but you know it when you see it, right? Interrupting others when they're talking, perhaps be one of the main things we teach our children early on, you know, letting the door swing back in the face of an elderly person coming in behind us, you know, that, and coughing without covering it, all kind of double dipping at the buffet, you know. The, 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 at Corinth, they had terrible, we've already read about this, they had terrible table manners, <laughs> terrible ter- table manners at, the, at Corinth. And the, these, you know, they were every man for himself. But manners are just simply... Uh, ways a particular culture shows respect and care for others, and rudeness is a is a dead canary. Where it shows there's something wrong in the air here. There's some. There's not enough love in this place to breathe properly here. Rudeness is one of the signs. Love does not insist. On its own way is the next phrase. Doesn't insist on its own way. The Greek there is does not seek its own. Your your translation, if you have a different one, might say just that. Does not seek its own. 
In other words, uh, NIV, not self-seeking. In other words, a person who loves is not about himself. He's not as about his own immediate narrow self-interest. Have you ever seen this thing? I don't know if you may have seen it online or something. Somebody's put it together, a list of toddler rules. You ever see that? Toddler rules. Some of you have. It's written by someone who's got to have a toddler. I've had one, right? One, if I want it, it's mine. Two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Six, if we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. Eight, if I think it's mine, it's mine. Nine, if I give it to you and change my mind later, what? It's mine. <laughs> Ten, once it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. Now, if those ring true to you like toddler rules. And if we, if we follow Paul's logic, you know, if we kind of insert that into what Paul is saying here in this passage, here's what we should conclude. Toddlers don't love other toddlers. <laughs> they don't love each other. <laughs> now, where there's this self-seeking, there's something wrong with the love. Uh, now, adults... You know, self-seeking adults, really, you know, they, it's not about, it's usually not about things you can take in hand, right? Like all those toddler rules. Unless maybe it's the last donut downstairs or something. But it's usually, you know, it's different things. It's, it, it's like, it's just getting our way. It's, uh, it's, it's that our preference is the one that's followed. It's that our judgment is, is, the, is the one that should prevail. You know, the decision should, I should agree with the decisions that are, that are made. It's just being focused on our, our rights and our comfort and our needs. Gordon Fee writes, in some ways, this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. It does not seek its own. It does not believe that finding oneself, and he's got the air quotes there, it does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, self-worth. To the contrary, it seeks the good of one's neighbor or enemy. If the big question about any relationship, any activity, any church involvement, if the big question is, if the overwhelming question, the main question, if it's, is it meeting my needs? Am I getting my needs met? Is this working for me? What's in it for me? Those kinds of questions just do not flow out of a love for others. That's not where they came from. They didn't come from that. 
Romans 15, it says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Well, why didn't Christ please himself? Because he loves. Because he loves us. Self-seeking, insisting on our own way, it's another dead canary. If where you have that, the love is getting thin in here. Too, Too thin to sustain life. Love is not irritable. Still verse 5. NIV says uh, not easily angered. Interesting Greek word here. It actually refers to something sharp that gets under the skin. Like a thorn. Well, sometimes it's also used of a sword. (laughs) We, we seem to have retained something of that image because it, we say sometimes, he's getting under my skin. <laughs> People you love don't easily get under your skin. Henry Drummond was a 19th century uh, Scottish evangelist and biologist. He died 1897. He wrote a book on this chapter Uh, titled, uh, The Greatest Thing in the World. Love. The Greatest Thing in the World. And he, in that book, he called this uh, this particular dead canary of irritability, he called it the vice of the virtue. He said, this one is the vice of the virtue. By which he meant that it's, and he said that it's it's disciplined people who get irritable and undisciplined people. You got the virtue of discipline, you get irritated, you know, at, at undisciplined people. Uh, it's neat people who get irritable about messy people. It's hardworking people who get irritated by lazy people. You know, we get, he made the point, we get irritated at people when they don't share our strengths. I think he was too kind, Drummond, he was too kind to the undisciplined and the messy and the, you know, the lazy. Because I've noticed that they get irritated too. Right? They, the lazy person gets irritated at the hard worker. <laughs> Who does he think he is? Slob gets irritated at the neat freak. That's what they call them, neat freak. Or, you know, or the well-dressed, the undisciplined person gets irritated at the well-organized one. So if we have to check ourselves for being irritated at people who don't share our strengths, we just get just as easily irritated by people that don't share our weaknesses or both equally you know, objectionable. <laughs> If you're irritable, but not, and this is once again to try to return to Paul's point, that I don't want you to hear here that the Bible says, thou shalt not be irritable. His point, although that would be fine advice, but Paul's point is here is you wouldn't be like that if you loved. You wouldn't be like that if you loved. You would not be easily angered, easily irritated, but it, with someone who you love. Paul could have taken a cue from Jesus here and said, which is easier to say? You remember when Jesus said something like that? Paul could have said here, which is easier to say? I am irritable or I am unloving. But in order that you may know 
that the root cause of your irritability is a deficit of love, just get right to the core matter and go, and go ahead and say, I am unloving. Because it amounts to the same thing. One comes from the other. Irritability is another dead canary. Says there's not enough air. <laughs> there's not enough love in the air in this place. Also, verse 5, love is not resentful, is the way the English Standard puts it. I, I have to say here, I think both the New International Version and New American Standard capture this particular point uh, with more uh, clarity. NIV, if you have that, it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Keeps no record of wrongs. New American Standard says, does not take, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And I'll tell you why I like those renderings uh, in, in those two particular translations. Because Paul really does use here an accounting term. It's, you know, does accounting and keeps no record. It really is an accounting word. He used the same word, Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Put to his account. Second Corinthians 5, same word. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So it really is a term that comes from the accountant's ledger. And another reason I like, I like those translations here are because it's clear in those that a real wrong has been suffered. I can, I can resent someone who's not done anything wrong to me. I can resent their success like it's an offense against me. I can resent their good looks or their abilities or their situation. That was no skin off my nose, you know, but I can still resent them. But this word, you know, love keeps no record of wrong. There's been a wrong suffered. And, and love doesn't write it down in the ledger book so that the debt will, ne will never be forgotten keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't hold a grudge. Uh, love doesn't file a grievance away in the memory bank so whenever you need it, you can pull it out and wave it in the face of the evildoer. Remember when you Love lets stuff go. Love lets people live things down. Uh, love puts a short shelf life on grievances. One time an older relative of mine told me about a terrible crime committed by my dad. He, it was alleged, didn't take my mom somewhere because she was large with child. That would be me, the baby in the womb, because he was embarrassed to be seen with her in public. And as that relative was telling me about this, her lips grew tight, you know, voice is starts shaking 
getting louder and louder and louder. She stood up and her body language was animated. She's about to pop a blood vessel. I mean, it was like she was... And when she, at the time when she was telling me the story, me being the baby in the womb, I was almost 50 years old. <laughs> 50 years old. And so I said, I'm almost 50 years old. This is something, in other words, this is something that happened more than 50 years ago. Or 50 years ago. I mean, you know, I was like, what's the, sing the Frozen song. Sing the Frozen song. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> I, I asked, just to clear the record, you know, I asked my dad about it, and he said he didn't remember anything like that. And I asked my mom about it. She said, oh, that would have never, oh, my goodness, that would have never happened. So, Maybe it didn't happen, or maybe it did, and love let it go down the memory hole. I don't know which. Archiving wrongs done to us rather than deleting them. Don't save, delete. <laughs> don't save, delete. Because where that grudge holding is... It's another dead canary. It's a, the love is too thin where that's going on. Six and seven. I'm going to handle this as a pair. Love does not rejoice. This is verse six. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Well, how do, how do people rejoice in wrongdoing? How, how might people in a church rejoice in wrongdoing? One way that comes to mind, I'm not saying this is the only way, but it's to take a smug or, a, or even a secret satisfaction in the moral failures of others. Maybe they're a rival in some way, or, or even a theological rival, someone we don't know personally, but, the, we, but they, we just think they teach the Bible wrong or they have things wrong, and there's a, there could be a smug satisfaction when they might be they might fail morally. It kind of gives us a sense of our own moral superiority on the cheap. You know, we didn't have to do anything. We just They just fell below us. And once again, it isn't just that delighting in other people's sin is a bad thing to do. It is. But the larger point is, and Paul's real point here, is that if you love, and people, if there's people that you love, you will not take satisfaction or self-justification in their moral shortcomings. Now, what's the, what's the other side of that? And finally, this is a live canary. we got some live canaries here. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but instead, in mere image, it rejoices with the truth. And in, because of this context here, I think we have to be talking, or at least centrally looking, at moral truth. It rejoices in the truth, the moral truth. You know, moral truth is God's sense of right and wrong. God's sense of right and wrong is not just his opinion about right and wrong. 
It's moral truth. What God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. Love won't rejoice in wrongdoing, but neither will it whitewash sin and call it love. I wonder, there's a lot of that going on, isn't there? Not rejoicing in the truth, not rejoicing God's moral truth, but washing, washing truth away in, uh, in the name of love. I wonder if those at Corinth who tolerated and even or even appear to be proud of their tolerance of open and brazen sexual sin in the church, I wonder if they did that on the basis of love or an alleged love. And the, you know, the argument would be, if you love, you will accept without regard to moral truth. And Paul says that isn't. That isn't love. That isn't Christian love because Christian love rejoices with the truth. Whenever, whenever I teach through a book like this, I try to read a new commentary every time. I, you know, it might not be new, it might be old, but it's new to me. But I try to read one commentary when I read through it, and I, you know, I just kind of build up a backlog like that. The one I'm reading now says, Here the idea is that love rejoices when the truth, righteousness, and holiness wins out. And that seems right on target. So finally we have a live canary. <laughs> people where people rejoice when others are... Uh, here's a good sign of, of, uh, of real love. When the people there rejoice in other people taking a greater hold of personal holiness. When they were... Rejoice when other people grow in Christ. When they mature spiritually, it's safe to breathe in a place like that. The last one, seven, eight, nine, ten, handle at one time. It's a string of living canaries. A whole row of them. Love bears all things. Verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here we have to recognize that Paul really is waxing poetic. This is poetry. And, and the danger here is taking Paul in a kind of wooden way, uh, I won't even say literal, but a literalistic way, when he's really speaking poetically. And I'm thinking about the possible argument here that all means all. So the seriously, I mean, I'm sorry, the serially and unfaithful, serially unfaithful, serially abusive spouse could say, you know, if you truly love me, you would bear anything, you, you would bear anything I had to dole out. If anything at all I could do, could alter your affections toward me, then you don't love me according to the Bible. You should love me. Or, or uh, believes all things. Love believes all things. Kids, does this mean you can tell your parents any crazy story whatsoever about what you were, you know, where you were and what you did, and if they truly love you like the Bible says they should, 
They'll believe it. They even have to believe it because love believes all things. Is that the sort of, is that what these live canaries mean? You know, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things? No, of course not. Jesus loved Peter, and he didn't believe for a second that Peter was going to be able to fulfill his grand promise of loyalty even to the death. So what do these phrases mean? They mean that those who love will have an extraordinary capacity for bearing up under under conditions that would normally and reasonably sap your affections. Maybe even turn love to hate. Love is generous with people. You know, when you, when you love and you have that kind of generosity, bearing up under, hoping, believing, you know, you, people who don't love say, you're, too, you're going overboard with that. You've got to open your eyes. Love doesn't write people off. Like Jesus didn't write Peter off. Why? He loved him. Even after Peter's dramatic denial, public denial of even knowing Jesus. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. He didn't write him up, write him off. Love hopes all things. Listen, how we, this is true, how we hold out hope that specific people will come to Christ even after years and years of showing no indication of spiritual interest whatsoever. You know that. Why do we do that? Why do we hope why do we hold out hope and we do? Why do we hold out hope with no reward for that hope whatsoever? Why do we do it? We love them. We love them. It's one of those living canaries. Where that's going on, there's love. 20th century missionary Amy Carmichael, she wrote in a book titled If. She said, if I do not look with eyes of hope on all in whom there's even a faint beginning, as our Lord did, then I know nothing of Calvary love. One of the things preachers have commonly done with uh, these verses is substitute Jesus for love, and you end up with a very, very true and very uh, beautiful picture of, uh, uh, of Jesus. And they plug Jesus where there's love. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude and on like that. But, as we've seen, this passage is not about Jesus. You, you could, there are other applications come closer to the apostles' intended point. You could come nearer to the point, but instead of putting Jesus in, you come nearer to what Paul's really after by putting your own name in there. It feels presumptuous to you. You know, when you look at the passage, you don't even want to say it aloud. You know, say your name and then say these things. 
But you say, read it and say, how's this sound? Does this ring true? I am patient and kind. I do not envy or boast. I am not arrogant or rude. I do not insist in my own way. I'm not irritable, resentful. Well, that's enough. You get the point. Prof. Hendricks, you say, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Closer still to what Paul's real point is here. Because what's this about? The whole passage is about, it's not about weddings, even though you see these verses on a wedding program. It's about the life and character of a church. That's what we're talking about here. And then this would be the real application. The the one closest, because Paul's talking to this church at Corinth, and he's talking to us. Can you do this? Can you substitute our name? Faith, Bible, fellowship is patient with people. There are lots of acts of kindness at Faith Bible Fellowship. You won't, you won't encounter arrogance or rudeness there. You won't find people insisting on their own way. These are not a fighting people. They're not irritable or resentful at Faith Bible Fellowship. It's a church that doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but they do rejoice with the truth. Faith Bible Fellowship bears up under extraordinary things. They want to believe the best about you at Faith Bible Fellowship. Suspicion of others is not their default position. They won't give up on you at Faith Bible Fellowship. They won't write you off because they have an enduring love. It is so. It's really true. And as we mature in Christ, it'll be truer still. Lord, we thank you for every instance and every degree to which these things are true about our church We know it isn't because we're good people, but because you have poured out your love in our hearts. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints, which blesses us, builds us up, works righteousness into us on a soul and spirit level. And yet, Lord, we know enough about ourselves to realize that, like the believers at Corinth, the flesh can wax strong, carnality can control and blot out love like a cloudy sky blocks out the sunshine. Continue to do your work in us until the day of Christ and grant saving faith to any here who remain outside of Christ and can have no hope beyond the narrow veil of this fleeting life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.